Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Black Peaks podcast, Tete Tete. I'm Chris Allen. I'm head of the Europe, Middle East and Africa practice for Black Peak. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Chris Gunson, who's a partner based in the Dubai office of Amarella. Amarella is an international law firm built for the Middle East. It has its main offices in Baghdad, Cairo, Dubai, Erbil. It's got strong relationships across the entire region, and it's widely recognized as one of the leading law firms for businesses in the Middle East region. Chris himself has been in Dubai for more than a decade. He's represented numerous multinational companies on various types of commercial transactions, strategic investments, joint ventures across the entire Middle East. He's a frequent author and commentator, not just on our Black Peak podcast, but also in news media, um, including Reuters, Bloomberg, the Financial Times. Um, he's been particularly sought after for his comments on the oil and gas sector across Iraq, Iran, Abu Dhabi. Um, in February 21, he was recognized by Thomson Reuters Asian Legal Business Magazine as one of the super 50 lawyers in the Middle East and North Africa region. And that's just the latest uh, recognition in a long list of, uh, of rankings in which he's appeared since 2016. So um, it's great to have him here today to share his insights into doing business in the region. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about challenges that companies from outside the region can face when doing business in the Middle East. In particular, we're going to look at a, an issue that our clients often raise with us, which is the issue of identifying a suitable local partner, um, the potential pitfalls of doing that and, and, and how we can help um, people avoid those pitfalls. But first, why don't you just kind of set the scene a little bit and perhaps talk about the, the overall business environment in the region as it stands today? Okay, so let's begin with the definition of the region, the Middle East. If you asked any number of people which countries were included in the Middle East and which countries were not, you'd very likely get an inconsistent set of answers. Some definitions would include, include all the Arab countries, uh, North Africa from Morocco to Egypt. Others would include non-Arab countries, just Turkey, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, but as far as businesses are concerned, there are six countries of particular interest in the region, which are the six countries of um, what's abbreviated as the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC. These six countries are the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, which includes the city of Abu Dhabi in Dubai. Uh, we have the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman. These six countries are uh, monarchies. They're all oil and gas producers, and most are very important exporters of oil uh, or gas in the form of LNG or LPG. So they have a critical role in the global economy, and other similarities they have is that their per capita GDP is quite high, uh, and uh, they're also very dependent on a large foreign workforce to drive their private sectors. In countries such as Qatar and the UAE, uh, the private sector workforce is more than 99% made up of foreign nationals. So I think that any discussion, you know, if we're talking about Egypt, Iraq, Morocco, and elsewhere, each country has its own... Uh, its own characteristics, its own issues, but today's talk is going to focus on, I think, on the GCC, particularly in Dubai, which really is the, the hub for the Middle East and you know, the, the greater region that includes uh, Africa, South Asia, and Central Asia. So 
that all that first set the scene. I think as um, you know, what part of the Middle East we'll talk about today? Sure. Thanks for that overview. Okay, so let's let's focus in on those those GCC countries that you mentioned, um, which are kind of primary interest to, to many doing business in the region. So, as we mentioned at the start, there's a in many cases a legal requirement to have a a local joint venture partner if you're going to be opening a company in the region. What are what are what are the rules there? Are some countries more open than others? What's really behind that requirement? What's the kind of um, the, the the background to that that kind of setup? Okay, so it's most useful to have a full picture, you know, looking historically. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to the uh, the nineteen fifties, when Egypt had their revolution and. Um, it, you know, they promoted pan-Arabism as a binding concept uh, you know, for you know, the region and the Arab world. Egypt introduced the concept of a 49% cap on foreign investment with the view that foreign capital was something that should be avoided. It was exploitative. There's a lot of socialist thinking um, in policymaking and in law back then. And all the countries of the GCC followed that uh, as they introduced their own corporate codes in the 1960s, 1970s, and 80s. So up through the Cold War, up until 1990, every country had a cap. 49% was the maximum foreign investment, and you required a 51% shareholding by a local national. So that compelled every business to be some form of joint venture with the local partner holding the majority. Now, in the 1990s, that first changed in Bahrain and Dubai's free zones. They allowed uh, 100% ownership uh, in you know, first in Bahrain, which became the hub for the region, especially the banking and insurance sector uh, in the 1990s. And in Dubai, they have these areas that are called free zones. These began as customs uh, free zones where you could import and re-export free of any customs duty. But these have over time, you know, there are now more than 30 free zones in Dubai that are focused on technology, uh, e-commerce, media, commodities, finance, healthcare, etc. And um, other countries have slowly followed suit. So Saudi Arabia has opened up to 100% foreign investment if you apply for and receive a license. But um, there's many other challenges to doing business in Saudi. So many uh, multinationals operate in Saudi Arabia as a joint venture. Uh, Qatar and Kuwait, they also keep that 49% cap with some exceptions. Uh, and then Oman, uh, it was a bit more liberal. They opened up to 70% uh, foreign investment back uh, about 15 years ago. And as of 2020, they allow 100% foreign ownership. Uh, so that's the historical background by which many joint ventures in uh, the UAE or Qatar or Saudi, that's why they are structured as 51% local ownership and 49% foreign investment. Um, there's historical reasons for that. Uh, and even up in today, um, you know, even as um, you know, there's been slow liberalization, uh, that's the rule for many countries. Great, thanks. So it's a pretty, pretty complex picture. What, what's the, what's the trend? Is there? It seems like there's been a, a trend towards liberalization. Is that likely to continue? Is it? Is it kind of consistent across the region? Um, or are there some areas? Yes, there is, yes there, there's a trend towards liberalization. And you see that in essentially uh, every country. Uh, I mean, Kuwait and Qatar maintain the 49% cap, 
but they've uh, introduced investment licenses or exceptional situations where um, a greater percentage can be uh, obtained. Uh, the UE has tried to uh, liberalize outside of their free zones. In 2018, they set up a licensing system, which really never got off the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, they changed the law. So later this year, certain sectors should open up to 100%. And of course, Oman is is one example that was 49%. It then opened up to 70%. And now it's open 100% uh, in most sectors to foreign investment. So that's sort of the trend. But at what pace it's going to continue into the future, we just we, we have no visibility on on how that's going to proceed. Sure, makes sense. So, I mean, thinking about um, you know decisions companies might be making, you mentioned that in you know that there's often a legal requirement to have a, a foreign partner. Um, in some countries, there may be also a, a sort of it may be it may be a good idea anyway. Um, could you just kind of talk about that a little bit, maybe? Um, yeah, maybe if we focus on Dubai, where it seems to be a kind of an area where people have a lot of, you know, a lot of regional um, headquarters based there serving very large regions. So maybe if we focus it there a little bit. Um, but is there a, you know, are there particular upsides to having a legal, a, a local partner, even if you don't necessarily need one in a free zone, for example? Yeah, different types of partners can bring different types of capabilities to the relationship. Mm -hmm. So some of it will just be general, uh, whether it's just doing business and operating in uh, a country. Uh, it may just be more useful to have a partner that can handle local operations uh, and the foreign investor uh, can focus on their core business, whether it's manufacturing or some sort of specialized service or uh, construction, um, et cetera. Um, some partners can bring with them distribution networks. So it's increasingly common for uh, distributors of certain products to receive investment in from uh, the manufacturer of the product that they sell. So um, whether you're talking about the automotive sector, um, elevator installation and maintenance, uh, and there's many sectors where the dealer uh, will receive uh, investment in from the, um, you know, the, the manufacturer of, of the product they sell, and that's how many joint ventures can begin. So yes, I mean, every joint venture, especially when it's cross-border, should have parties that bring different strengths to the relationship. And there's any number of reasons where, depending on the sector or, or that you're in, or the product or service you sell, where you just want a local partner who you know, can bring something um, that, that's special to the region. Great, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you've you've worked on... Uh, in your time in the, in the region on, on on very very many of these sort of deals joint ventures what are the you mentioned you touched on some of the options there what what are the other options that companies had when faced with this requirement to have a local partner or this desire to have a local partner um you know you hear about people talking about people with political connections people with kind of um, connections into local business what are the what are the considerations that companies have and the options that they have when, when looking for a local partner? So there's different types of partners that you can have, you know, as your, um, you, know, uh, you know, as your partner. Well, there's different types of businesses you can have as your partner. And we can probably roughly break them into five categories. So I'd uh, say so the first category is uh, a local person 
who is um, or, or their business that is somehow perceived as being connected to uh, a royal family or has some sort of other influence locally. Uh, this is a common type of partner where um, you know, they are a partner purely because of their influence, their connections, or uh, their wasta, uh, to use the Arabic word for, uh, for influence and connections. Another common form of partner is an established private business. That's like the Al-Fatames, the al Guraires in Dubai, uh, the Al-Jabbers, the Al-Suedis in uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, the Abdul Latif Jamil uh, type of companies in Saudi Arabia. And you know, every country has its own local family or, or local business uh, that is a significant player in the market. These are common partners for multinationals that, uh, that team up um, with a local company to, um, to focus in any, uh, any country. Um, the third type of uh, common partner is a nominee. This is a local national who really just only serves a function to hold shares in a company, but not be actively involved in the business. These arrangements are very common. Uh, and many of them can run successfully for many decades. Uh, and the key point uh, to consider is the legal structure that you put in place. Because simple side agreements by which they just give up all of their rights are typically not enforceable. You need to have a robust uh, set of legal documents in place, shareholder agreement or joint venture agreement, often loan agreements in place by which, at least in form, the uh, local partner is being loaned the capital that they contribute to the business to get their 51% or more. Uh, you also want to have powers of attorney in place and other things that allow you to protect yourself if this nominee decides to exert more control over the business or decides they're not being paid enough to be uh, the nominee. The fourth and fifth types of partner you can have would be a, uh, a non-local national, so therefore foreign business. There are many South Asian uh, businessmen in uh, the Gulf who've been active for many years in all sorts of sectors. Uh, there's also other businessmen that are from uh, the other parts of the Arab world, from the Levant, maybe from Palestine and Lebanon. Whether you're uh, teaming up with you know, either a South Asian-owned local business or an Arab-owned local business, then they probably have their own nominees when they're running their business. So what's important is that any joint venture should not be using the same nominee which is controlled by them. Otherwise, you might find that you have a 51% uh, shareholding by a nominee and then a 24.5, 24.5% holding by your local partner and the foreign investor. But if that 51% nominee is controlled by the local businessman, then in fact, they control uh, you know, a, a supermajority of the shares in the venture. So picking a new nominee for any joint venture with a foreign business is one critical step. Sounds a bit complicated, but at the end of the day, these five types of partners, almost every joint venture will find uh, that their partner fits into one of these five categories. Great, thanks. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. So I noticed when you when you talked about the, the, the category of partner, the first category of partner there, talking about political connections, you used the word perceived. Um, I know, you know, as a lawyer, you probably choose your words very carefully. Um, so I wonder, you know, if you wanted to kind of explore that a little bit more, is it sometimes the case that, that, that these partners don't necessarily have political connections or that they do, but they're not particularly useful? What's, what's, the, what's your experience on that? It, it is definitely fair to say that the most common mistake 
made by a investor or a business that is entering the Middle East for the first time without much knowledge on the ground, the most common mistake to make is to team up with somebody who is perceived to have connections or some sort of uh, family connection that is very uh, influential to their business, uh, and they find out that actually this has really no value to their business at all. That is, I would say, a very common occurrence um, because at the end of the day, we have you know, free markets for a reason. And um, a connection um, with a product that is not the best product for the market is uh, you know, very unlikely to win business for any long term. At the end of the day, you need to have the best product or service or pricing for whatever is needed for the market or you know, for the customers or clients of that market. And trying to override that with some sort of connection is almost never going to work. Now, it doesn't mean that certain types of partners in certain countries can't be very effective. Of course, they can be. But you have to really make sure that you're picking the right partner. And that's always true, but I think this is just a mistake that is so common that it's really worth getting information and understanding what you're signing up to because a joint venture is not a simple contract that you can terminate. It's a type of marriage. Once you get into it, once you spend the time to set up a company and have shares that are where you're also in a partnership with another party with shares, if you want to leave that joint venture, someone's got to buy somebody out or the business has to be liquidated. It is not a simple process. Sure. So it seems like, you know, interestingly, I think, you know, when, when, when talking about that kind of potential partner, you know, many people might perceive the risk to be that you, that you, that you believe someone or you understand someone to be politically connected. It turns out they're not, and you've overvalued the relationship on that basis. But, but what you seem to be saying is that actually that fundamentally valuing political connections in the first place may be the error rather than selecting somebody who doesn't have the, the influence that, that, that you thought they did. You know, I think that's uh, what, what's really, uh, I think, what's really um, useful as a reference is looking at the NGOs that will do these global rankings of the perception of corruption. And you'll find that the UAE and Qatar and Bahrain tend to be uh, in the same uh, ranking as Western Europe. So doesn't mean that uh, things are perfect and that influence uh, doesn't impact business. But at the end of the day, uh, it, we're talking about fair modern economies where, like in most fair modern economies, uh, the business decisions are paramount. And if you look at even more challenging countries, for example, Kuwait, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, here the ranking might be on par with maybe Southern Europe, uh, but often you know, higher than places like uh, China. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, alongside many other countries that are, you know, modern, developed countries. So, yes, I think that there's this old standing view that uh, a real family member in a Gulf country will be very powerful and influential and will secure business. But that just simply is not the case. I'm not sure it's ever been the case, but certainly today in 2021, it is just uh, it's not a major deciding factor in most businesses. That's very interesting. I think it will, um, you know, that's quite an enlightening kind of view. What, what are the other sort of key 
misinterpretations, mistakes that yeah, that, that foreign investors have around around starting to do business in the Middle East. What what can they do to sort of minimize their chances of making those mistakes or or sort of going into things with a bit of a you know, a clearer insight into the into the true situation? Well, I think another major uh, mistake that is unfortunately all too common is uh, I would call it exposure. So committing too much business, delivering too many products, uh, or performing too much of a contract uh, without prompt payment. Because late payment is a very common problem in the Gulf. Uh, there's a perception that these cities and these countries are very wealthy. They, they look beautiful. Um, often investors and businesses that are new to the region don't imagine that late payment should ever be a problem. But actually, uh, it is. Um, you could find that uh, the bigger the customer, the more time they will take to pay. And you can find yourself in a very exposed position where you just simply have to keep performing even without uh, payment because the consequences of trying to give up and uh, you know, seek a, a legal claim to make payments are just too costly and risky. So, um, yeah, controlling your uh, exposure uh, just keeping in uh, you know, in place checks uh, when you sell products, receiving letters of credit or prior payment. These are all very important things because, uh, regrettably, uh, chasing after payment is one major legal challenge for uh, many companies in the Gulf. And, uh, and are, are companies generally amenable to those kind of prepayment or letter of credit type approaches, or um, are there situations where um, companies may have to? sort of take a view based on um, more kind of like an intelligence type approach around a, a potential counterparty's approach to, to credit? Many companies make the business decision to take on a lot of risk simply because the opportunity looks so great. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking as a, uh, as a lawyer, uh, if a company wants to make that decision, that's one decision that might be a rational business decision. But don't sign a contract that has some sort of governing law provision or dispute resolution provision that you would find possibly uh, um, unworkable when you need to claim uh, payments. That is regrettably a, a common situation. You'll find that um, let's talk about uh, international arbitration and choice of venue for the resolution of disputes. Let's say a, uh, an English company is going to um, do business in Dubai. They have, uh, let's say, the governing law of the contract being English law and uh, courts in the UK having jurisdiction over uh, the dispute. Well, they might feel more comfortable about that because it's their home turf and it's their you know, the courts that they understand and has experience in the past. But trying to take a judgment from a court in the UK to enforce it in anywhere in the Middle East, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, or elsewhere, is extremely challenging and maybe impossible, depending on who your counterparty is. So international arbitration is a common form of dispute resolution. Um, that's something that I think is, is often misunderstood People tend to look at dispute resolution almost from a view of nationalism. There's this view that my own country's law and my own country's courts will be best for me. 
But that's rarely the case. And far more important is knowing if you win, can you enforce it? And that's why international arbitration is the preferred uh, venue for dispute resolution in any cross-border um, transaction. But in a particular case in the Middle East, most countries in the Middle East, and certainly all of the GCC, have signed up to the uh, UN Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. It's often referred to as the New York Convention. Uh, not all countries have signed up. So, for example, Libya, Yemen, uh, Sudan, um, Iraq only very recently ratified the New York Convention. So international arbitration isn't always the best route of dispute resolution. But uh, in most contracts, that is what you want to be uh, requiring before you uh, do any business. That's great. Thanks very much. And and, and, and was there anything else, um, any other sort of kind of common misperceptions that you wanted to, to mention before we before we wrap up today? I think there's also a, a major uh, misunderstanding when it comes to the use of Arabic uh, and the necessity of hiring Arab nationals. I mean, in a place like, let's say, Dubai or Abu Dhabi, Doha, 99% of the foreign workforce is uh, made up of foreign nationals. And the vast majority of these people speak no Arabic whatsoever. Uh, now, coming from outside the region, there's often a perception that, well, you, you, know, you have to speak Arabic to be really effective. Um, and while that is sometimes the case with the right person, at the end of the day, you, you usually want the best person. If they happen to be South Asian, European, East Asian, uh, or if they happen to be, let's say, from Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, that, that, that's of course fine. But language should not trump other skills uh, when hiring staff and managers. And that's, yeah, another common mistake, I would say, of companies that are setting up for the first time uh, in the region. That's fascinating. Yeah, the, the, the internationalization of that, uh, uh, particularly of, of the UAE, is, a, is an often overlooked um, factor, I think, in, in the decisions that businesses make. Look, Chris, it's been, it's been great to have you on today. I feel like we've really only sort of skimmed the surface of your, your depth of knowledge about this, this subject, but it's, um, you know, I've certainly learned a lot, and I hope that people have listening, who are listening have too. Um, so, yeah, all that remains is for me to, to thank you for joining us today. You're most welcome, and we can uh, always meet again for part two. That would be great. Thanks very much. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Bye.